Well, uh, let me invite you for our study tonight to turn again back to 1 Corinthians. Enjoyed our Q&A last time, and we'll do more of those, but also a joy to be back and um, to continue plugging away here at 1 Corinthians, particularly to turn back to chapter 6 is kind of where we left off. We, we have a, a section tonight to sort of finish. Um, admittedly, there's going to be quite a bit of a review um, and, and only the last part of our time this evening is going to really finish out verses 9 through 11, but we've really verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6 has sort of f- f- become this three-part series for us. So we're in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, and you know there's something unique about being able to camp out in a larger section and then taking three Sundays to, or Sundays, Friday, Friday night, it's not Sunday, it's Friday. Friday evening, um, to, to sort of continue to ponder, you know, as I keep thinking about this section as a whole, you know, more and more things keep coming to mind and it, and it just keeps cementing itself uh, in my heart. And, 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 and the greatest burden, here's how I would summarize it, that Paul has in these first 11 verses is that Christians would act like Christians, to put it bluntly and simply. I mean, what we encounter here specifically and what is happening in Corinth is really um, just an illustration. It's a, a very specific one, you know, one having to do with lawsuits and Christians taking other Christians to court over silly little things, as we will uh, review again tonight. But, but all of that is really an illustration, an extended one, into which Paul is going to challenge a church to act like Christians. In other words, we could put it this way, this is a passage about our testimony and our witness in the world. I mean, so when I frame it up that way, I mean, just let me let me just by way of introduction even ask you. I mean, how do you how do you think about that? You know, um, you know, oftentimes when you when we think of courtroom language and we think of testifying, we think of witness. Uh, you take the witness stand. You swear an oath that everything you say is going to match the truth and be representative of who you are. You didn't lie about your identity, and then you give a testimony in one sense. That's, that's what we think of, perhaps, in American culture about our testimony. Well, when you get into the language of Scripture, that kind of falls short a bit, because what I say only carries so much weight. And that's, that's a huge part of what Paul is dealing with. Not just what I say, but what I know even. In other words, our Christian testimony goes beyond our knowledge of Scripture and theology and right doctrine. Our Christian testimony goes beyond our profession. But our Christian testimony pierces, we find in this section, into our very life. You know... If 
we'll just put it this way. If your life was put on a transcript, would it testify to the glory and the sufficiency of the gospel? That's something that we have to ask ourselves. It's something that Paul was challenging the Corinthians with. And particularly, I've got to pull up my notes here. Wow. Particularly, the situation that he's writing about and trying to address, in other words, in counseling language, right, the presenting problem for the Corinthians was very specific. They were not acting like Christians. Their testimony was a terrible, and we might even say, because of verse 5 here, a shameful testimony for Christ and the gospel and the family of God because of what they were doing to one another, because of their inability to resolve petty squabbles in the church. And this is the review part, but notice, you remember... Paul begins in verse 1, writing in utter astonishment about their shameful situation, specifically. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And you can, you can hear the, the, the tone of his voice. It's, it's incredible. And if you remember, Paul was so alarmed by these lawsuits for three particular reasons, not because he was against lawyers. I mean, I know lawyers have a bad rap. <laughs> not, not because he was against um, even the role of government in judging serious crimes committed. I mean, he'll, he'll write in Romans 13 that there, there actually is a role for government to do that, right? To punish evildoers and reward good. That wasn't the issue, but he was so surprised, shocked, and appalled at these lawsuits because, first, the nature of the, the conflict and the issues at hand, the matters, in other words, that, that, that the church was bickering about were petty. They were so trivial. This was Jerry Springer. <laughs> this was, um, what's the other one? Judge Judy? What was it? I don't know. Anyway, we don't watch that, right? Good. You shouldn't know that, guys. <laughs> so encouraged um, that you don't know those yucky shows. But that was the nature. That, that's, that's, what, that's what this conflict, that, that was the nature of their disagreements. And, and the language here, you remember um, that Paul uses it's translated here, case or matter or thing, tells us that we weren't necessarily talking about criminal or sinful disputes or, or issues that were being disputed. Rather, verse 2 describes this case as uh, the smallest, meaning it was insignificant. Uh, and, and you read verse 3 and 4 and and. And you find this phrase, matters of this life, which is just one word suggesting that the disagreement was just over things which pertain to everyday earthly affairs. These issues were, were trivial and they were fighting over them. But secondly, this was shameful and Paul was shocked about the situation because these because of the parties involved, not just because of the nature of the issue. Remember, 
part of the problem was that they were, both parties were Christians. Uh, verse 1 says against his neighbor, literally another, but verses 5 and 6 specify unmistakably that these neighbors were brothers in Christ who belonged to the same church family. And so the fact that fellow members of the same body and the same family were suing one another made the situation all the more shameful. But lastly, you remember, maybe the most serious of all, which is why I began by saying the issue here was their testimony before a watching world. It's because these cases were being decided and judged and taken before pagan authorities. The church, in other words, is airing their dirty laundry to the world, and it was a shame. Notice twice Paul emphasizes in this passage shock that they were taking these disputes, verse 1, before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And then he repeats himself in verse 6, brother goes to brother, like brother goes to law with brother, and that even before unbelievers. Paul could not believe or fathom that fellow Christians were resorting to worldly means to get what they wanted from each other. I mean, guys, what kind of a testimony is that? He was appalled, he should have been, that the church would turn to the world for judgment against one another over such small issues. So that was the problem, right? It was shameful in every way. And if you remember, then for the rest of this passage, Paul writes to actually shame them. We said last time, uh, just to give you your sort of big picture outline, again, remember that Paul seeks to correct the Corinthians by giving two reasons in this passage why they should have been able to resolve this conflict on their own. He says, this should, this should never have happened. You should have been able to resolve this among the people of God. By the way, these were indicting reasons meant, like I said, to shame them. But specifically, here are the two reasons. Is they should have been able to settle their own disputes as believers because, number one, Christians are supposed to have a more superior wisdom than the world. Remember, we looked at that in verses 2 through 6. Christians are supposed to have a more superior wisdom than the world. And then secondly, which we'll finish this evening, verses 7 through 11, Christians are supposed to have a more eternal perspective than the world. Well, last time we mostly considered the first reason from verses 2 through 6, where Paul, Paul begins by arguing if you remember that the, the Corinthians should never have turned to those outside the church for help because Christians have wisdom enough in Christ to handle the disputes on their own. And again, just to finish out the review here, he, he makes this, if you remember, by an argument from the greater to the lesser. Look at verse 2 again, just to jog your memory. First in verse 2, he argues that someday... Christians will judge greater matters, 
greater issues than the current petty squabbles that they were having amongst themselves. You remember? Look at what he says in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute then the smallest courts? You see, specifically here, verse 2 tells us that Christians will judge the world. That is to say, one day, you and I will be called upon as saints to settle matters of cosmic proportions and global significance. And Paul's logic is this then, if, we'll ha- if we will have such great wisdom then for much bigger issues, then should we not at least be able to judge much smaller matters of this life now? That's his argument, right? It's from the greater to the lesser. And he does the same thing in verses 3 and 4. You remember? Notice that. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know, again, that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who have no account in the church? In other words, do you set unbelievers with no spiritual wisdom in a place of authority over those who will judge angels one day? See, we saw last time here that someday Christians will not only judge greater matters, but Christians will also judge greater creatures. That's part of his argument here. It's really interesting. Specifically, someday the Bible affirms that we will judge and even rule over and have jurisdiction over angels. By the way, for your own study, you go and read Hebrews 2 verse 9 um, at some point where Scripture considers angels to be of, currently at least, higher spiritual rank than men. And so Paul's logic is this then. Look, if one day you and I will be called upon to judge these glorious creatures of greater power and majesty, then should we not at least now be able to judge lesser human affairs within the church? Again, an argument from the greater to the lesser. But notice verses 5 and 6, and he concludes this first point, summarizes this argument then, with an explicit reference to their lack of wisdom. Notice, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? That was the issue. Listen, for the church, for a church like Corinth, that boasted so much about its own spiritual wisdom and knowledge. Paul confronts them for practically, listen, practically behaving as though they had no more wisdom than the world did to deal with conflict in the church. Think about it, guys. It's like, look, we come here and learn so much. We come to this church, Twin City 
Bible church and we learn the depth of theology and the rich truths that are in the scriptures. We, we sit in sermons that are almost an hour long. <laughs> so much learning, so much knowledge, so much insight. And this would be like, look, what does it say to the world if with all that knowledge and learning that we can't even handle the smallest issues in life? kind of a testimony is that? Like, what is all that learning for then? What is all that wisdom that you're acquiring sitting under sermons for then? You see Paul's point? You see Paul's trouble with the Corinthians? Christians are supposed to have a more superior wisdom than the world. Shame on us if we live as though Christ's wisdom is not sufficient. Shame on us if we end up turning to the world for answers, which, by the way, answers that we will one day be expected to provide at a cosmic and angelic level. (laughs) And yet now we're turning to those with no spiritual insight to settle those matters in the church. That was shameful so that was, that, was, that was reason number one why they should have been able to settle these issues among themselves. But, but, but let me just ask you tonight, in light of that review even, do you live in such a way that demonstrates to the watching world as that there is a greater, better, and more superior wisdom to be had in Christ? Examine your life. That's that's what this passage is intended to challenge and to bring out and to expose. Look, are there areas in your life, are there ways in which you behave and act as the Corinthians did and act as though, man, I'm just at my wit's end here. I, I have no idea what to do because I I don't have wisdom from God on this area, so I must turn to the world. I mean, do do you, have you ever been in that situation? Paul is saying, look, you've got to think more carefully about what that says to the unbelieving world. I mean, it doesn't make, listen, that doesn't make for a good testimony. That doesn't make Jesus out to be as glorious as, as he actually is. Do your choices, do your actions, do your words, do your decisions, do your relationships bear witness to the fact that we as believers who have the Spirit and the Word have answers to life's most pressing questions, most difficult dilemmas, answers that the world knows nothing about. Do you live like that? Earlier, and I couldn't help but think of early in 1 Corinthians 1, remember way back in the day, (laughs) verse 21, we learned that the, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Look, why would we turn to the world then for wisdom for this life? Christians, Paul Peter tells us, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that Christians have been given, granted everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? 
do you put on display to the watching world what Colossians 2 tells us? Paul reminds us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, verse 3. And in Him, chapter 2, verse 10 of his letter to the Colossians, in Him, that is Jesus, you have been made complete. Do you live in such a way as to tell the watching world, I have what I need in Jesus. He is sufficient for me. There's sufficient wisdom in Christ. Because believers, we have what the world does not. To us belongs every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Every necessary resource. In fact, just peek back to chapter 5 here of our letter, 1 Corinthians no, sorry, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21 through 23. You remember Paul, Paul had, had already reminded the church there that, look, all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Friend, what more do we need? What more do we need? So how shameful it was when those who have every resource provided for them at their fingertips act as though they have none. It's like, look, you have a car sitting in your garage. Why are you walking to work? Should the Ph.D. professor turn then to the high school dropout for help? Should the Supreme Court justice turn then to the toddler for counsel? Like, then neither should we as Christians turn to the world to settle our disputes because we have a more superior wisdom than they could ever offer. That's point number one, and that's just review. <laughs> but not only that, notice second, again, it, the second indicting reason now, beginning in verse 7, that Paul gives as to why Christians should be able to settle their own earthly disagreements. Paul argues in other words, that it is, a, it is a shame that believers are taking each other to court before unbelievers, not only because we, we should have a more superior wisdom than the world, but also, number two, because Christians are supposed to have a more eternal perspective than the world. In other words, guys, you shouldn't even be fighting over this. <laughs> In other words, as, as those who are supposed to have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, as citizens of a new and heavenly realm, Paul says, look, his argument here is this now. Christians should be those who have very different priorities now. They, they value eternal rewards over temporary gains. Right? How childish it is for you to be fighting over that. Haven't you gone beyond that now? You should have very different priorities. What mattered to you as an unbeliever should no longer matter to you as a believer. Instead, you should have a more eternal perspective than the world around you. Sadly, you remember, instead the Corinthians were demonstrating by these lawsuits and infighting that they actually had Instead, the same temporal, earthly, worldly, selfish, short-sighted values and priorities that their unbelieving neighbors had. 
And listen, that also is a shameful testimony. Yes, we bring shame upon the name of Christ when we act as though we have no more resources than the world does. But likewise, we we also, guys, bring shame upon the name of Christ when we act as though we have no different priorities or values or pursuits or ambitions or perspective in Christ than the world has apart from Christ. Look, when, when, when those out there see the church chasing after the same vain things they chase after, what a testimony is that? In Christ Christians, Paul's argument here is, should not only prove to have greater resources than the world, but we should also prove to have higher priorities than the world, a more eternal perspective. And we started the second reason last time, if you remember, but I don't think I gave you any subpoints to hang your thoughts on, so I'd like to do that tonight. So under the second main point, the Christians should have a more eternal perspective than the world. Notice first verses 7 and 8, where Paul argues that we should, here's, Here's um, the, the first sort of priority, I guess you could say. We, we should be less concerned about what we may lose temporally in this life. I'll repeat that. We should be, if, if, we're, if, we have, if we're to have an eternal perspective, here's the first part of that, okay? Christians, you should be less concerned then about what you might lose in this life. Temporarily. That's verses 7 and 8. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a second, but in the last paragraph, I'll give you the second part to this, which will finish up in verses 9 through 11. He's going, Paul's going to argue that then we should be more concerned about what we might lose eternally in the next life. That's the second half to this eternal perspective. You know, what it means to have the right spiritual priorities, it it consists of these two things, right? It's tested by these two things, that you're less concerned about earthly things and what you might lose here and now, and more concerned about what you'd lose then in the next life. That's what characterizes the Christian. But back up, notice again first, consider with me verses 7 and 8 again. He writes this, actually, he says, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Now, In other words, Paul was convinced that the fact that these lawsuits even existed in the first place was already an indication that this was a total loss and an utter failure for everyone who was involved from the very get-go, right? We we saw this last time. He, he He didn't need to stick around for the trial. He didn't need to hear the jury render their verdict. He knew that no matter what the outcome was to be, no matter who ended up winning the case in that court, from God's perspective, it was already a lose-lose situation. No amount of 
temporary earthly financial gain acquired from suing one another could outweigh for Paul the spiritual loss of just going to court before unbelievers and damaging your testimony. Paul's argument here is that it's actually better to let yourself be wronged and defrauded than to commit wrong yourself. It's better, Christian, to lose your argument than to lose your testimony, to lose your rights and have them trampled over than to lose your love and your worship of God. In other words, it's possible... Paul says here, to win in an earthly court, but lose in a heavenly one. To be right in the eyes of men, but wrong in the eyes of God. But for us as Christians, we need to be reminded today that there is always, there is always something more significant than our own personal temporary rights and privileges in this life. Look, those who have an eternal perspective know that. If we're to have as Christians a more eternal perspective than the world, that means we should be less concerned, at the very least, about what we might lose here and now in this temporary life. But there's the second part to that. Notice, rather, secondly, we should then be more concerned about what we might lose eternally in the next life. Look at verses 9 through 11. And we'll wrap up this section. But that, that this is precisely what it means to have an eternal perspective. This is the, the two sides. This is the second side of that same coin. Notice how Paul makes this point now, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, Maybe many of you have read these verses before, or you, maybe you've even used them in the past to, to talk about conversion or to debate homosexuality, <laughs> because they're, they're loaded, and I understand, they're loaded with some pretty, some very significant theological concepts. And so, you know, I'll admit even um, in the past, I've just dive-bombed into this without consideration to the context But tonight, I want to show you the context in which these glorious words are penned. And my primary goal as we finish this up is to show you just where this fits in Paul's argument. Because I think you'll be encouraged by that. Because really, these verses are the capstone to a very strong argument that Paul is making about why Christians should avoid petty squabbles. Notice, there's actually a very tight connection between these verses and verses 7 and 8. First, the connection is not as clearly seen maybe in your English text, but it's found in the word that's translated 
in both verse 7 and verse 8, look at it, it's translated wrong, at least in the New American Standard. Once in verse 7, once in verse 8, you find this word wrong or wronged. And it's actually the same word just in the verb form of what Paul uses here in verse 9 that's translated unrighteous. So you draw a line from those two words, wrong in verse 7 and 8, to this word unrighteous in verse 9. There's a tight connection. In, it, the, the term in general describes that which is contrary to righteousness and justice. So technically, then if we're going to reflect that, which I wish translations would do, if we're to bring out the connection here in verses 7 through 9, we should read it this way. Why not rather be treated unjustly? On the contrary, you yourselves treat others unjustly. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom? You see the connection now? The tight connection between this and what we've just seen in 7 and 8. The second connection is found in the conjunction or at the beginning of verse 9, which tells us that what Paul is saying here in these verses is an alternative to what he just said in verses 7 and 8. Okay, follow me on this. In other words, instead of being more concerned about temporal loss, the alternative, Paul says, is being more concerned about eternal loss. Instead of living with those, those earthly priorities and values, how about alternatively living with these priorities and values? You see what Paul is doing here? He's shifting our focus from being concerned about what we might lose in this life and trying to grasp for that and fight and claw for that and take each other to court for that. But rather, look, he's saying, look, you should be more concerned about what you could lose in eternity. So what, is it, what exactly is at stake here? What does Paul say that Christians should be more concerned about missing? If you adopt an eternal perspective, what should they prioritize? What should we as believers prioritize and value over winning a petty lawsuit against our brother over earthly things? Well, notice he repeats the issue. He repeats what is at stake here twice in these verses, verses 9 and 10. The issue is inheriting the kingdom of God. Do you see that? It's inheriting the kingdom. That is to say the focus, or at least it should be for the Christian, is not in your earthly inheritance. It's not in what you can grab for yourself here, because that is here today and gone tomorrow. It's moth and rust will destroy it. Thieves will break in and steal it. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that which is eternal, that is forever. That is far more valuable that is what's at stake. That is what you should be more concerned about. This is how we ought to live with a kingdom mindset and an eternal perspective with our eyes fixed on heaven so that we are more concerned about what is to be gained there and not here. Look, let me just 
when you back out and just think about that for a moment, how much would that help you? Put, just put into perspective the bickering that you might have with other people in this life. That's so helpful, right? I said it like a couple messages ago. Maybe it's just, it's, it's, sometimes I want to just talk to my kids about that, right? Like they fight over the silliest, tr- most trivial things. And it's like the world to them. And look, if, if we as Christians, we, we act like that sometimes. We act like that, and sadly, even in the church, before the world. And, and Paul is saying here, look, broaden your perspective. Broaden it to eternity. Broaden it to the kingdom of God. Your inheritance is future. It's not here. What are you fighting about? I love that he does that. Like, because Jesus himself said, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And Paul might add there, what does it profit you if you win all the lawsuits that you file against one another, if you end up just forfeiting your soul because you're unrighteous? So Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Seek first His kingdom. His kingdom. It's the same teaching here. My friends, the kingdom of God is far more important than what you and I might disagree about or fight over in this life. In fact, that's exactly Paul's argument in Romans chapter 14. Now, we don't have time to go there, but what is in Romans 14? Anybody? What is that chapter known for? Anybody? I know you're like... He's, is this interaction in the middle of his sermon? What's happening right now? Come on, Romans 14. Turn there if you have to. 13 is about government authorities. 14 is about what? Mm-hmm. Conscience issues. Good, yeah. I mean, look, that, that is a chapter, listen, you need to visit often. It is so practical and helpful when it comes to differences in the body of Christ and it teaches us how to handle those differences but here's my point listen to Romans 14 uh, verses 15 through 19 because Paul makes the same argument that he does here he pushes our perspective on these petty little squabbles over non-issues into eternity He stretches our minds out and backs us up and says, look, get some altitude to that thing and it'll help you solve that disagreement. You'll realize how silly it is. Because in Romans 14, he's going to address the issue of fellow Christians who disagree on non-moral minor issues of opinion like gray areas and conscience. Listen to what he says and how he puts it. Romans 14, verse 15, For if because of food... Look, everyday matters of this life, earthly junk, food, okay? 
Because if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God, our phrase, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then, he concludes verse 19, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. In other words, guys, get some altitude. Think spiritually, think eternally. See, to have an eternal perspective, back to 1 Corinthians 6, to have an eternal perspective, Christians have to be able to prioritize and value spiritual issues over temporal and material things. You have to be able to do that. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, look, if you had just done that, you know what? You wouldn't even be in this position in the first place. And by faith, those who inherit the kingdom believe that God is and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. They don't fight and claw for what they can have here and now, but rather they desire a better country, Hebrews 11 says. That is a heavenly one. And the lesson here in this context is that those saints may indeed be defrauded and lose some of this worldly inheritance Like their heavenly inheritance is far more valuable than what they might get by wronging and defrauding one another. But notice first verses 9 and 10. We saw this last time how Paul describes those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we didn't see this last time. Notice how Paul describes those who will not inherit the kingdom. We already mentioned how the broadest description here is of those who act unjustly or do not conform to God's righteous standard. But Paul follows that with a more detailed list now of 10 vices. And obviously, you don't have time to um, explain each one of these in detail. But grammatically speaking, all of them show up in a form that implies that Paul's not thinking of these as acts that are committed in moments of weakness here and there. Rather, These words describe those who have made a lifestyle out of these sins, okay? So these sins are what characterize these people. Fornicators are those who live a lifestyle of sexual immorality. The Greek word is where we derive our English term pornography from, okay? It's a broad uh, category that just refers, I think, to any kind of illicit sexual activity outside of God's righteous design for marriage. Um, That's single people, married people, whatever, whatever, all categories, okay? Idolaters are those who worship false deities. Adulterers are those who more specifically violate their marriage covenant and are unfaithful to their spouse. Effeminate is an interesting term that refers quite literally, I think, to the softer side of a homosexual relationship. They had those specific terms in their culture. And then you pair that with this next term, homosexual, describes someone who has sexual relations with a person of the same sex. In fact, Paul 
it's, it's likely that Paul coined this term by bringing together two words that are found in Leviticus 18.22 to describe men lying with men. Um, that's, this, that's this word. Thieves are those who are characterized by stealing that which does not belong to them. It's the word we get our term kleptomaniac from. Uh, it's that root klepto. The covetous are characterized by greed. Drunkards are those who are obviously addicted to drinking alcohol. Revilers describe people who are characteristically contentious, quarrelsome, and abusive towards others. And swindlers are those who um, rob and take things by force. So you can, you, can, you can couple this with thieves, but the difference is that thieves do it secretly and unexpectedly these guys, they just, they do it with violence. Paul says, look, unequivocally, there's one destiny for all these kind of people. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, I've read a lot of vice lists, and this is a bad one, right? I mean, it includes some heinous distortions of... Um, and maybe, maybe you're like the Corinthians then, and you're sitting there saying to yourself, yeah, th- those kinds of people, man, they're a mess, right? They're really bad. Of course they won't inherit the kingdom. But did you notice what Paul does here? Paul actually, in this context, puts these Corinthians who were unjustly taking one another to court in the same boat as the unrighteous of this list. You can't resolve conflict and you you end up suing a brother in Christ. That's the same unrighteousness that's at the heart of these kinds of sins. You're acting just like these people. And, and notice his warning here. Did you notice it? And his warning here actually is do not be deceived. Like, why, why does he have to write that? One author says, Herein lies the power of Paul's argument. It is possible for people to be deceived about their status, about their testimony, about their profession. Another commentator said, The people of God frequently have trouble recognizing that injustice is as serious a sin as incest and other sexual misconduct and that it warrants the very same punishment. So in effect, like think about this, guys, that we would hear of someone who has left the faith and is now living just a heinously sinful life you know, the thought should not be, oh, you know, they're terrible and they won't inherit the kingdom. While that is true, Paul's point is, but you need, you need to examine yourself to make sure that you're not deceived either. That you don't just see that as unrighteous out there, but that you know that you look at your own life and your own testimony and see how it is that you are living out what you say you believe. You see, Paul knows, because Paul knows 
that it is especially easy to be self-deceived when we know what the Bible says, but fail to live it out. That kind of a situation is recipe for self-deception. And so his warning to the Corinthians here is, look, you better be careful that you're not guilty of the same kind of worldliness and unrighteousness that these people are guilty of that would cause you to forfeit your heavenly reward and inheritance. But there's something that all these have in common, this list. They don't have an eternal perspective. Did you notice that? They, they live for the here and now. Or, or to, to borrow the language from Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is in their shame, and what? They set their mind on earthly things. Is that you tonight? I'm, I'm not talking about your profession. I'm talking about your practice. Is that you? Is it obvious to those around you that you're living your life for the kingdom of God? Or what others look at your life and say, you know, actually, it looks an awful lot like you're building your own kingdom. That you're, that you're fighting and clawing for all that you can have in this earth. But finally, notice in verse 11, he ends on a, on a, on a higher note. <laughs> notice in verse 11 how Paul describes then those who will inherit the kingdom. In short, they are those who have been radically transformed by the work of God. And this is so encouraging because it tells us that none of these kinds of people are beyond the grace of God to save. Because he says, such were some of you. You were this. You lived this. That did characterize you, and yet, God saved you. Look at verse 11, but such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Look, no homosexual is beyond the grace of God, is beyond cleansing, is beyond justification. No kleptomaniac either. Paul reminds the Corinthians here very clearly that they too were once characterized by sin and worldliness. But for those who will inherit the kingdom, that lifestyle is a thing of the past. That's the language. Because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In other words, God cleansed you. He washed you. And he, he not only did that, he set you apart as his own. And not only that, he declared you righteous and forgave you of all your sin. And all of that God did when he saved you. You might say that he picked you up, he dusted you off, he brought you home, he legally he reconciled you to himself. In other words, Here's the bottom line, right? You ask, well, who are those who will inherit the kingdom? I mean, naturally, like if you didn't have verse 11, we might try to write in there, well, it's those who don't do those other things. 
And while that might be true characteristically, but that's not what Paul says. You know what, what is it that characterizes those who will inherit the kingdom? They're those who have received divine grace. Divine transforming grace. In other words, those who inherit the kingdom are not those who try to clean up their own lives, but those who have already been adopted as true sons. Like Those are the ones who are going to be heavenly-minded. Those are the people who are going to be thinking of how to please their heavenly Father. Those are going to be those people who in this life are looking forward to the life to come because they long to be home with their Father in heaven. You have to be truly adopted and saved and placed into the kingdom before you will think this way, before you can truly have an eternal perspective. Everything else is but a shell. Which group do you belong to tonight? Will you inherit the kingdom? That's, oh man, such a good question, right? Will you inherit the kingdom or are you a counterfeit son and daughter? Here's the test from the Apostle Paul. Do you have an eternal, do you have a more eternal perspective or do you have a more um, earthly perspective on life? What do you love? What do you value? What do you prioritize? Are you more concerned about what you might stand to lose here or what you might stand to lose in eternity. I'll just close with this. John Owen in, a, in a, his book in Spiritual Mindedness writes this then, the spiritual mind knows that spiritual and heavenly things alone truly satisfy its desires. It is a hunger and thirst for spiritual truth. And then he says then, spiritual mindedness then is the chief characteristic that distinguishes a believer from all unregenerate people. And that's what Paul is challenging the Corinthians with here. So, um, look, think of your testimony. What does your life say to the world? Um, Does it communicate to others Man, the Christian life is the best life. We have all the resources we need. We have superior wisdom. And does it communicate to the watching world that there's more to this life than this life? Do you live in a way that says eternity's coming? And I'm more concerned about inheriting the kingdom than inheriting, look, this stuff. So examine your heart. That's what Paul challenges us with here. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this, this, uh, this great section that we've got to just slow down and spend some more time in. And we, Lord, we, we, man, we know how often we live in ways that are not consistent with our position and our profession. Father, forgive us. And even in those moments, remind us of the kindness that you showed us in Christ, that there is forgiveness. 
And Lord, may we, as your true children, then um, demonstrate to a watching world that our chief concern is pleasing our Heavenly Father. Help us to live that way. Um, Help us to live by faith. Help us to be more spiritually minded than we are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.